Talk about this, talk about that. Chuck Yates needs a job. I had a point. I don't know where it's at. Chuck Yates needs a job. Welcome back, everyone, to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. This is part two of our two-part series with Jeff Davies, a.k.a. Energy Credit One, a.k.a. Oil and Gas OG. Part one, I think we learned this dude's really thoughtful. I think we learned this dude's real. There was a really raw discussion we had about the fund he put together and it not working out the way he wanted to. Part two, we're going to talk more about the future. We're going to talk about MLPs. We're going to talk about oil-filled helping hands and the $200,000 that EFT raised to help out folks. And we're going to talk his music list. His playlist is really cool. A little bit of surprising the tunes on there, but you're going to like it a lot. I think at the end of part two, the lesson learned will be, let's not major wine flex as a host all through the podcast. What's the next 10 years? I mean, what are we, what are we doing? You run an oil and gas company. What do you do? Focus on returns. Focus on investment. Um, you know, plan your business for the facts on the ground and the reality on the ground. You know, if you can generate enough cash and enough free cash flow, you have the ability to, I guess, kind of, you know, manage your own, uh, manage your own future. But, you know, I don't think, you know, the industry is in a place where they're not going to still need to raise capital. Um, You know, everyone needs to just, continue to reduce costs. You know, we've seen this year in particular a ton of consolidation. I think consolidation is going to continue to be a big theme, quite frankly, because, you know, if you look back the last couple of years, you know, through technology, through efficiencies, people reduce their LOE costs, people reduce their, you know, trans- gathering and transport costs, you know, to the best that they could. Um, but the only place that I see to reduce costs is through reduced leverage. Cause I mean, you need to look at things from an all in cost structure. And that's the way I looked at things from an investment investor perspective. You know, what is your total cost structure? What is your, on a per unit basis, here's the revenue you get. Here is the, you know, LOE per unit. Here's the transport cost per unit. Here's the interest cost per, per unit. And then here's the GNA per unit, right? So, you know, let's talk about leverage, right? The industry used a ton of leverage because at the end of the day, the returns weren't that great. So they leveraged themselves up to provide better. And they were given it, right? And and they were given it. Yeah. And they were getting, I mean, we can all take a step back and say like, gosh, what a bunch of idiots these, these management teams were, but who wouldn't have taken the leverage if you were given it, right? Who wouldn't have been up? None of us are not hopefully very few of us are pessimists in life. Right. So most people live their life as optimist and they think. Well, particularly, particularly if you're in oil and gas. Of course. Right. Right. So, hey, let's spend every dollar we have. Drill this well. Now let's see what happens. Right. I mean, you're an optimist by the by design and and again let's let you know one of the things that i had of the big whiffs in this industry is you know all the people for years and years and years said oil can't go below x because of the social costs in middle east like that was like the biggest greater you know foolish thing for people to say ever like how did that play out like that 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 floor just got you know ridiculous um you know, so if you're an optimist and you believe prices are going to be at a minimum X and you believe there's kind of upside prices over time, of course, you're going to take leverage to leverage your business. Um, you know, but you want to reduce that cost structure. You know, the only way that you can do that now, if you've eked out all the efficiencies is, you know, in my opinion, technology and through con- consolidation, right? So, I see a ton of consolidation in the industry. We've seen it already, but it should continue to happen. I don't know why the Appalachian Basin isn't consolidating more, quite frankly. Um, People like their, their their jobs. I mean. Right, right, yeah. right, right. I mean, 
you know, where does the industry go? Um, you know, I, I think we need, uh, you know, you look back at like a Questar, you know, a number of years ago, they had this utility-based E&P arm, you know, is, is there scenarios where there's the ability to like carve out a piece of the industry that is kind of rate-based like that, you know? To me, that makes a little bit of sense. I mean, right. um, how do we do deal with renewables? You know, I mean, you know, the industry gets so worked up and, you know, I certainly see this on my own Twitter account where I talk about renewables and people get all worked up about it. You know, I saw there was an article in Wall Street Journal today, I believe, uh, you know, world energy supply is going to go from 10% renewables today to 13% by 2030, right? Like renewables aren't going to displace fossil fuels anytime soon. But at the end of the day, the marginal barrel or the marginal MCF is what matters for prices. You know, and you can see a scenario where, okay, in 2030, which isn't that far away, you know, 2030, the writing is on the wall that... Um, demand's going to start, you know, we're going to be at peak oil uh, and demand's going to start to kind of flatten out a little bit. Is there a scenario where the Middle Eastern countries, the Saudis of the world, the Russians of the world start to flood the market? That's my concern. You know, yeah. I'm bullish from a uh, lack of capital investment perspective. But how bullish can you be when there's eight million barrels off the market today? Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. I've kind of said that on the podcast that I've been on is you've got eight to 10 million barrels sitting in Middle East. And even in the freaking home run months, right? I mean, when we are the home run years, we were growing at what, a million barrels, a million and a half barrels a day. So it's like, sit there and go million, million and a half versus eight. Now that assumes the U.S. stays the same and doesn't decline. And I know we're on a rapid decline, but every time I look up, the U.S. stays flatter than I think they should. Right. I mean, they just do. you know, what are we at? You know, oil, 100 million barrels a day, plus or minus world demand, I believe, is kind of yeah. the right zip code. The U.S. today is at 10 million barrels a day. It's hard for me to imagine a scenario where we decline much from here, quite frankly, because nobody's going to buy a depleting asset base. So all these companies are going to, at a minimum, flatline or grow slowly. So then you take a step back and say, well, the rest of the world, yeah, of course, decline curves never sleep. And you got this wedge that you need to deal with on a global basis. But you have, like you said, eight to ten million barrels a, uh, a day off offline right now. So combined with, you know, again, just just saw these stats by 2030, 30 percent of all uh, cars will be EVs in China. That will be 48 um, percent. You know, you can't just look at supply and think of supply. It's the supply and demand you know, perspective, um, you know, it's hard not to be constructive gas right now, but really, you know, at the end of the day, how high can gas prices go before somebody in the U.S. starts to say, gosh, why are we exporting all this natural gas and let's stop LNG exports, right? right? I mean, if, if gas were to go to five to six bucks in this country, especially if you live in Texas where your power prices are basically based on natural gas prices, there's going to be shit to, you know, there's going to be people raising hell saying, why did my utility bill just double and we're exporting gas to China, right? Right. Um, you know, it's interesting. My, uh, my father, who is, as we speak, Born in 1940, so he's, uh, you know, he's 80 years old. He's about to turn 81. He just put solar panels in the vacant lot next to his house to sit there, and his electric bill every month is electricity used versus 
electricity generated and sold to the grid. And he'll call me every month and it's like, oh my God, I made $48. I made $87. And one time, and I feel so bad about this because I finally said, hey dad, what's your payback? I mean, you you spent $140,000 putting in the solar panels. He goes, it's nine years. And I go, dude, you're 80. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, do we, really, do we really do nine year paybacks at this point? But love him. I really hope he makes it to the payback on the, uh, on the solar panels and all that. So, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, you're right. I mean, it's just, we've got all this, we've got to deal with it. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things I learned from you today in terms of talking about this sort of stuff is, and I don't think I had an appreciation for this because I've always been an EMP guy, right? So EMP guy, it's acreage cost, DNC, what do we get? The infrastructure is years. It's 10, it's 15, it's 20. And you're right. I mean, like the fucking world's changed in terms of uh, in terms of doing that. So well, I, if I could take a step back, I mean, just like you look at a broad kind of macro spec perspective, you know, I actually just think everyone is concerned about inflation today. And this is like, in the last 20 years of my lifetime, the third time people have said, gosh, look at all this stimulus in the US and around the world. And this is going to be inflationary and it's great for commodities. And that dovetails back into what, you know, I mentioned about Texas teachers and why they wanted in a hedge, which turned out to be a disaster. Right. right. So, you know, I would be cautious about saying um stimulus is going to be inflationary so it's great for energy or great for commodities i think it is short term but i actually think when you take a step back and say you know between technology and you know ai and what's kind of coming down the pipe from those perspective it's super deflationary and how high can rates ever go and we're going to be in this kind of you know situation where governments around the world never can really let inflation get out of control or let you know let rates get out of control because you know automation replaced blue collar jobs i think ai is going to replace white collar jobs right so you know if you if you think that you know, you no longer need a junior banker because you can get it, you know, programmatically have some, you know, a spreadsheet full of data that you need. You no longer need a junior lawyer. You no longer need certain doctors. Um, like the employment and labor situation around the world just because of technology, I think is going to be problematic for governments around the world. And they're going to have these fiscal problems that ultimately ultimately mean, you know, everyone's going to have a shit ton of debt. That means they can't let rates go nuts. So we're going to stay in this free money world for a long time. But I don't think it leads to inflation, quite frankly. Um, you know, I, I, I think where energy plays into that is, you know, again, I think it's very easy to be bullish. Like, you know, I'm, I'm really not that exposed to energy myself today. I've missed this recent trade, um, you know, but I would be cautious that it lasts too long, quite frankly, just be from the perspective of, um, you know, I think rates stay low. I think money, money stays cheap. I think, you know, the U.S. is only 10% of global oil supply. So if you're only focused on the U.S., maybe you're mi- missing the bigger picture. You know, you know, if rates stay low, uh, you know, look no further than the deals that have done by the Asian countries over the years and, you know, buying up Sandridge garbage and kind of, you know, buying up the Barnett stuff like they did. You know, there's always money that will move closer and closer and closer to the wellhead for 5%, 4%, 3% if they're a 1% capital company, right? Um, yeah. 
So, you know, there's always going to be money to drill. There's always going to be money to bring supply on um, in a low rate environment. So I'm kind of on the opposite side of the market today. Everyone thinks rates are going from whatever, 1% and, and going higher. I think we actually stay low. And if rates stay low, there's these huge pools of capital that are always going to look for some place to put it, whether it's pensions or sovereign wealth funds, et cetera, et cetera, that are going to say, okay, well, if rates are one, I'm cool with 3%. I'm cool with 5%. And I can go do a you know deal at the wellhead and I can do something like that where, uh, you know, if, if prices go up, money's going to come in and prices will go lower, I guess is what I'm saying. You know, and I hear that, and I want to believe it. The issue I have is that 37% of all of the dollars ever present, ever printed in the world happened in 2020. You know, and it's just like the, the problem with fiat currencies, because Nixon took us off that, right, you know, whatever, 50 years ago, is they generally seem okay, and then at some point, they don't seem okay, and then like 22 seconds later, it's fucked. You know, I mean, the Weimar Republic was like great in 1923, 1924 shows up and boom, all of a sudden there are wheelbarrows of dollars everywhere. And so that's the thing I struggle with. I mean, it's just like. But do we see the same thing in renewables, for example, as we saw in shale, right? If there's all this capital, people have completely underestimated the solar cost curve. I actually, when I was at that convert our fund, looked at a ton of Chinese solar converts that came to the market back in 08, 09, didn't touch one of them because they were Chinese companies. But you look at that solar cost curve, it's come down like crazy. I mean, so shale's a great example of if you throw enough money at something, you can do kind of things that you can't believe that you can do, right? And look right. at just in the last number of years, um, excuse me, just in the last number of weeks or months, Look at what's going on in hydrogen, which I had no idea what was going on in hydrogen. And there's been just this kind of explosion of hydrogen activity where, uh, you know, Korea, Spain, France, uh, I think the UK, a number of these companies, have, uh, countries have come out and said, you know, we're going to invest $10 billion, $20 billion, $9 billion to ensure hydrogen is part of our energy stack. You know, so if you throw enough money at something um, and technology is there to kind of bring it along, uh, you know, all of us have to appreciate that something that we can't believe can happen can happen. Again, like, like I said, I, I don't think like the whole fear over renewables replacing fossil fuels isn't a three or five year concern. And I think people get worked up about that. It's a 30 or 50 year concern. But, you know, that marginal barrel matters at the end of the day. And, and can it happen? Sure it can. Uh, if you throw enough money at it. Again, just having seen some of these statistics, 65% of all the money um, that will be spent on energy investments over the next decade will be on renewables, right? So we're spending more money on renewables than we are on fossil fuels, you know? So if you put enough money towards something, you have to appreciate that, gosh, you know, nobody back in 2005 thought shale would be, we would go in the US from 6 million barrels a day to 12 million barrels a day. There was nobody that thought that. Right. Nobody thought we would go from 50 BCF a day in the U.S. to 100 BCF a day in the U.S. Nobody thought that, right? So right. take the perspective, if if you're in the industry, hey, maybe renewables can do something that that I don't believe they can do and look no further than shale. Um, you know, so that hits the demand side of the equation, whereas the supply side of things is, you know, a little tougher to get your arms around. Um, 
you know, unless you have a global perspective. Like I said, I, I find it hard to believe that we don't grow a little bit from here in the U.S. in the next couple of years. But are we ever, you know, have we peaked in the U.S.? What's your opinion? No, that's really, that's really uh, the debate. So January of 2020, I was sitting there. I go, man, my my fund seven sucked, right? I mean, NGL prices lost two thirds during 2019, and we had a lot of men caught in it, right? So it's kind of like, boom, I got hit there. Acreage values went down, and I was an acreage guy, right? I'm an early stage investor. Told every LP that, hey man, we do early stage investments. You know, so the acreage took a hit, still felt like we could drill good wells, all that sort of stuff. But in January of 2020, I was really sitting there saying, well, it's going to be at $80 at the end of the year. You know, we've peaked. There's just no way we can generate anymore. We've hit. This is really interesting. I'll get these stats wrong, but directionally they're right, right? If you looked at 2014, 2015, 2016, 2017, the average IP30 of a well was up 30% a year, right? Because we were hitting it with a big, bigger hammer, right? So boom, boom, boom. And then when you get into 2017 and you look at 2018, 2019, it's like up 18%, 18%, right? And you go, man, the trend's still going. And then you sit there and you say, you know what? Let's take out every Exxon well and every Chevron well. Because those guys didn't drill in the Midland, you know, in the Permian until later you know so they're kind of johnny come later they watched everybody else do it if you took out their wells kind of 18 and 19 down one percent down two percent so we had clearly flattened out i mean hitting everything with more sand had plateaued i mean in terms of technology and all that boom we had plateaued and so you're sitting there and you're going, oh my gosh, we're not getting any better. You know, we've hit everything we can hit, all that. You know, Exxon, Chevron, yeah, great. They're doing it now. But, you know, anyway. So I actually kind of felt like rolling into 2020, it had sucked. I mean, you know, oil prices were where they were. We generated a lot of production. But I really thought by the end of 2020, we were going to be at $75, $80 oil. And boom, COVID hit and screwed all that up and got me fired and all that good stuff. But, you know, I don't see that technology out there that's going to let us do better. And I get the fact that, okay, prices may rise. And we may, as an industry, spend our cash flow to drill new wells based on higher prices and all that. I really don't see any external capital coming in. I know in January of 2021, we're up 15%. There were $3 billion worth of inflows in the month of January towards oil and gas stocks. I don't know that that $3 billion showed up if you said, hey, man, we're going to take your money and go drill new wells. I think it was a price bet, you know, but that's just me. I'm sitting there doing, I'm sitting there thinking through that. So long-winded answer to your question is, freak, I don't know, man. I mean, I just think, I think the commodity has upside because of lack of activity out of the United States, I think demand's going to be stronger than we realize. I mean, every person I know says, oh, man, vaccines are here. Fuck it. I'm going to go get on an airplane, you know. And um, so I think we're going to get back to 100 million barrels a day quicker than we think. 
the U.S. is going to be shrinking and all that. But, yeah, man, I mean, that's a stew that, you know, I want to serve for dinner and tell people, tell me what you think it tastes like. I, I don't disagree. Um, is capital going to come in the industry for additional supply? I don't really see that anytime no, soon. No, they fucking hate us these days, right? right? I, I don't see that anytime I mean, soon. ESG, all that sort of stuff. I mean, I keep telling people that. In fact, I texted it out on Twitter today. I'm like, if you think there's going to be a reversion to the mean, it's not going to happen. I mean, $80 oil is not going to cause capital to come back in here because they hate us. Right, and, and, and the industry is part of that, right? I mean, it, it, all the majors have the net zero emission targets, right? Like, they, they have all bought into the ESG mandate. So um, if they were to move away from that, I think you see more investors leave the Conoco's or more investors leave the Exxon was one of the last ones, the BPs of the world. If they don't live up to... I mean, it's kind of this, you know, the boy who cried wolf story. If you tell me you're going to live within free cash flow for eight years and you don't do it, and then finally I've got you to do it and you you don't do it again, I'm just going to be like, I don't believe you, right? Right. Um, that goes back to our information issue is like, well, why can't you do it? Oh, shit, you're drilling less than 25% rate of return wells. Right, right, Yeah. right. And, 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 you know, we, we had touched on this um, before we started the podcast, but I, you know, I actually think from a, hey, from an investment perspective and a capital inflow perspective, more information is better than less information. If I'm an E&P that is actually drilling good wells, why am I giving you a really shitty PV10, you know, data dump once a year? Why not create something that everybody can access on a monthly basis that here's my wells, here's the actual production numbers, and you can see that what I'm telling you is true. And if you like what you see, you will invest in the company and you believe the free cash flow that I'm generating and you believe the rate of return that I'm generating off those wells. Give that to the investment community and it will create more interest because one of the problems for this industry has been the the data and the kind of um, lack of data and the confusion in the data. Well, and it's one it's it's one reserve report a year, right? Right. It's right. the end of the year, and until recently, it was whatever the year end prices were, and so if you spiked up to. $125 oil, boy, that was your PV10. So I like this. This is so when Energy Cynic was on the podcast, he called for leadership. You took that up. We're going to cover that in just a second. You just called for more information in the industry. And I agree with you. I think that would be really cool. If oil and gas companies would say, we're spending our capital and we're generating an X percent return. And oh, by the way, here are the 42 wells we spent it on. Here's our forecast. Here are the actual dollars we've gotten today. Here's the tail. And oh, by the way, every month that goes by or every quarter that goes by, let's give them some wiggle room you can do the tail versus the tail. Does it hold up? I think that would be huge. Uh, I think that's a great call to arms right now for every oil and gas company. I agree. And, and, and I think you combine that with, right, part of the problem that I see in this industry is the incestuous nature of the boards. You know, so, so if everybody has their buddies right and it's all a bunch of oil and gas guys so so you combine more information with better governance meaning may bring people from outside the industry on your board um you know you solve a lot of the problems that all these 14 trillion dollars of esg money are concerned about right you've given me more information you've solved the governance issue because 
you know, again, go back to my Comstock piece that I that I mentioned earlier. That's a board where, you know, Jay Allison went to Baylor and I think it was, you know, seven of the nine board members went to Baylor. Right. And it's his, you know, his football teammate was the uh, the compensation chair. Right. And it's just like you look at that stuff and you're like, how can I invest in this company? It's just ridiculous. Let's do this. So when I had Senek on the podcast, he had a similar type call. We did five questions and we went through who should be on the governance committee, who should be on the cheery committee, you know, and all that. I got I got tasked with being in charge of the cheery committee only because I could sing Little Annie. In all seriousness, I want to put this back at you. I think you ought to get with Skilling. I think you ought to get with Cynic. I think, you know, add two or three other, maybe quick draw on that. Although, you know, I hate to give quick draw too much credit. Love you quick draw, but seriously, I think you guys ought to get together and I think you guys ought to create this is good governance for a public company, and I think you ought to publish it. I really do. I think if you guys came out and said, we've thought about it, we want outside directors, we want this, we want that, and you published it and you pushed it, you guys could have an impact. You may be giving us more credit than than what we deserve, but, uh, you know, Dude, the, you raised two hundred thousand dollars. The community, you know, the community, a community has a lot of impact, right? And 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 the reality, just because I've had folks DM me and you know, folks reach out to me, you know, EFT is full of you know, company executives, industry folks, private equity folks, buy siders, yeah. sell siders. So, you know, we could certainly you know have some impact. Whether the companies, you know, buy into that, I think they probably listen to shareholders more. But if we can get that message out to their shareholders, it, it could certainly have some impact. Well, and I think shareholders listen. I mean, that was my whole point. I mean, at the end of the day, do I think you're going to change a management team because energy credit and skilling say you ought to do that? No. But if you guys are saying that and shareholders hear that, I think y'all could do that. And you know what I will say is, one, I've done a podcast with Cynic. Now I've done a podcast with you. I've DM'd with Skilling, and I hope I'm not violating a, 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 a confidence with Skilling by saying that. I think the three of you guys are really thoughtful. I mean, I, I really do. I mean, I don't think you're unfair. I don't think anything that you guys came up with would be egregious. And you know what I think you guys would do, given what I know about you guys? You guys would suggest that the EFT, it would get like totally hashed out by EFT, right? I mean, people would say, oh, you're fucked up for saying this. You're not screwed up by saying this. This is good. You should do this. It would be a well-vetted plan, ultimately, that you presented to management team. I think you guys ought to do that. In all seriousness, I really think you ought to do that. And I think that's our role. I mean, I think that's ultimately you know, what you, Skilling, Cynic, and the others are doing, being on EFT, saying the things you do, that's the role. Let's formalize it. Let's really put it on paper. Let's get it out to people and all that. And I think you'd have a cheering crowd. Let's do it. I mean, it's a good idea. Um, you know, I certainly hope that as the industry kind of bounces off the bottom as it, as it has the last couple of months, that the community stays strong and continues to have a strong voice. You know, I, I have taken a step back a number of times and thought like, gosh, why does this happen in the industry, excuse me, the energy industry, when I don't see this happening in the tech industry, I don't see this happening in 
manufacturing or healthcare, what's happening on Twitter or in the community. And at the end of the day, my only conclusion is misery loves company, right? right. And uh, we've gone through misery as an industry, and I hope we continue to be a force, even if the industry bounces back, as we all hope it does, right? Right. Like, but what we've done and the influence that we've had, and let's not overstate it by any stretch of the imagination, but I've had a number of people tell me that they follow what we say and they get, I, you know, I have a, a, a good friend who that has a research team and he's like, Jeff, there's been times that I've been pissed at my guys that do my research because I find out something from EFT before I find it out from my own guys, you know? So, right. You know, so that we do have influence, right? No, uh, you totally do. Five, five, four, four, three, three, two, one, 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 one. Time to dust off your iPods and check out these songs from tonight's guest. I've asked every guest to come on, create a playlist. I mean, and so the whole thing is, I didn't give you a lot of guideline. I'm like, create a playlist. And you're like, what does that mean? And I go, I have no idea. But I want to hear what you put on the playlist. Tell us the songs. Tell us what they mean. Tell us what was uh, behind each one of the songs and all that. And let's talk about it. Because I think that's going to tell us a lot about you. And I think this is going to be really cool. So tell us your playlist. (laughs) Why are people there? All right. So I, I gave you seven songs, and I'll just go through them, I guess. So... The first song is uh, Beastie Boys, Shadrach. And Beasties were really part of my formative years. You know, Shadrach's on Paul's Boutique, which came out in 1989. I was in high school at the time. Go back a couple years to 87, 88. I actually saw Beastie Boys and Public Enemy warmed up for them. Uh, this was in Syracuse, New York. Um it may sound wild, but me and I'll give them a quick shout out. My buddy Mark Coates and Jason Robinson actually had a, a little rap group, three white dudes with our own <laughs> rap group. I had two turntables in my basement trying to follow what the Beasties were doing. Um, but, you know, Paul's Boutique, I listened to for, you know, an entire summer, really. And, you know, if you know that album, it was one of the first albums where the the entire album is basically samples of different songs right so 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 interesting you say that because it was before the lawsuit right i mean i forget the name of the lawsuit but there was a lawsuit that said samples you got to pay and all that sort of stuff but paul's boutique was literally the last album out the door the unknown thing about that album is they actually paid for, in terms of royalties, about 90% of the samples that they used. And uh, But that being said, it was amazing because the Dust Brothers, uh, the EDM group, had written, call it 10 songs, and we're going to publish the album. And the Beastie Boys called them, coming off the success of uh, You Gotta Fight for Your Right to Party, and said, let's do an album. And they spent almost a year together, literally in one of the Beastie Boys' apartment, doing that. And they took those 10 songs, and they wrote 10 more songs, and they morphed it all together to create this. And... One, I forget which critic it was. I think it was a Rolling Stone guy. Sergeant Peppers of rap. I mean, it was an amazing album. You know, if you're my age and if, you know, I'm kind of grew up as a rap guy for, for a number of years, still am. It was, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's the best album that's ever made. It's my favorite album because you have to, you know, kind of put yourself in that point of time. There was nothing like that that was ever done at that point, you know. So it's it's my favorite album, remains my favorite album. I still listen to it to this day from 1989. Um, you know, those guys, 
you know, like I said, they were formative for me and kind of loved it and still love it. And the other thing that was cool about it is, you know, they had had their success with licensed ill, right? I mean, you ought to fight for your right to party. Quite frankly, cheesiest song ever written, except for maybe Ice Ice Baby by Vanilla Ice, right? I mean, incredibly cheesy and all that. But what was interesting is they took the money from that, and quite frankly, all of their fathers were Wall Street lawyers, so they weren't starving, right? Mm-hmm. And instead of like playing on that and writing, you ought to fight for your right to party number two, those guys went into hiding, hung out with the Dust Brothers, and created this. And it was amazing in that it came out, it didn't really sell as much, obviously, as License to Ill. And they had they only had two singles off it, right? And so they do that. But at the end of the day, I mean, we're sitting here 20 years later saying that might be the greatest rap album ever produced. And you can say that and people will say, oh, I don't agree. But they won't say you're crazy. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. So, I mean, so many good songs in there. Car Thief, B-Boy, Bullet Bass. I mean, B-Boy, Bullet Bass is basically five or six songs within a song, right? Like yeah. It's what they did with the production of that album had never been done before. So that's yeah. why you have to appreciate it. No, it's amazing. It's amazing. Good call on that choice. So the second song is Bob Marley, Mr. Brown. You know, I'm a reggae fan. Everybody knows Redemption Song, No Woman, No Cry, Bob Marley, you know, love him. Um, and Mr. Brown's kind of an, uh, a song a lot of people don't know, and I just kind of have, have always loved that song. Um, you know, as I knew I was going to come down here, I've, I actually, like, thought about and looked up because I had kind of forgot about what the song was about, and it's basically about a ghost in Jamaica that people like believe there was this ghost and there was a week or two in Jamaica where people were hiding out in their houses because they believed there was this ghost and Bob Marley basically made fun of it. So it kind of relates to today for me where people can kind of fall for these lies and these fantasies and, you know, kind of fall for things that aren't real. Interesting. You say that I took my kids, and I took my parents to Jamaica. And we had one day where we were all going to go our separate ways and do fun things. So I sent my daughter, Sarah, with my mother to the spa. Pedicures, manicures, all that. My daughter, Kelly, wanted to go fishing. So she and I were going to go out on a boat and we were going to fish. So we did that. My son, who you and I have talked about offline, and I think a lot of my audience knows, I mean, Charlie's a music dude. I mean, he's 18 years old. He's creating EDM stuff. It's I'm a proud father, but I think it's actually pretty good stuff. He and my dad went to Bob Marley's house, right? And it was like a two-hour drive and all that. And so we all get back that night we're doing dinner Mimi and Sarah how was the spa oh my god it was so great we got our pictures Chuck you and Kelly how was fishing oh my god the boat was so rocky we had to come back we didn't do anything Charlie and dad how was Bob Marley's house it was the biggest jip joint in the planet I mean it was just <laughs> this it was horrifically cheesy and all that that being said, at dinner that night, my dad, who is not a music guy, and my son, who really is, said it was, and I'm paraphrasing here, spiritual. I mean, Bob Marley is such a force in our world. That was his house. They're trying to make money off it. That's fine. But outside of that, you walk around it, and you get a lot. I mean, he it was a simple shack, right? I mean, this guy grew up in that simple shack. 
and he's coming back and it's like, oh my gosh, this is, I get a lot of what he is saying in his music. So anyway. Yeah. I mean, and you just, you know, can't help but take a step back and say, gosh, what could he have done if he didn't die when he did? Right. Exactly. What else you got on that? So list? the third song was G Love, uh, When We Meet Again. And, you know, I, I like G Love and you know, kind of acoustic, you know, rap. You know, I, I have a very eclectic kind of music taste. I mean, I like Zeppelin. I used to like Metallica. I think back when I was really young, Motley Crue, uh, rap. Um, but I like acoustic stuff as well. G Love's kind of, you know, acoustic and rappy, actually. But When We Meet Again has this line in it that really kind of touches me. And I wrote it down just so I could remember it. And it says... My friends, they were few, but to me, they were true. All we was trying to do was just make it through. Always thought of the future, but we shouldn't have cared. All the best things in life, we shared them right there. And, you know, I grew up son of divorced parents. All my best friends were kids of divorced parents, as it turns out. And um, we really took care of each other and grew up kind of take care of each other. And you always you know, kind of think about like, man, the future and things will be better and things will be better. But those dudes are my best friends in life to this day. Um, and those friendships and, and what you experience kind of growing up through that is it hit home. Uh, it hits home and that line hits home for me. That's cool, man. The next is Ryan Bingham. It's called The Hard Times. Ryan Bingham is a singer songwriter from Texas. Um, you know, I've seen him live. I'm a big live music guy. So I've seen, seen him live a number of times. I would suggest if you can see him, go see him, uh, rodeo guy that taught himself guitar and, you know, the songs again, kind of hits home where, you know, we talked about this earlier. I think everybody is always going through hard times and Hey, don't, don't ever forget that you know, that guy, that girl, that family, you know, whoever you know that you think has their shit together, everybody goes through hard times. And that, that song kind of hits home for me. Uh, Michael Fronte is my next song. Hey, hey, hey. I could have picked a bunch of his songs, but he's another guy that I've seen live a number of times. He's my wife's favorite musician. She plays it around the house all the time. So I kind of have grown to love him. He puts on one of the best shows that you'll ever see, you know, does a lot of small venues still to this day and just has a great positive message. So if you ever can see Michael Fronte, I'd tell you to do that. Hold on. I got Spearhead comments here because Michael Fronte and Spearhead, yeah, right? Yeah. So the Foo Fighters out on their first tour, right? Um Kurt Cobain's died. Dave Grohl recorded this album, uh, puts the album out, and uh, all he goes out on tour. He comes to Houston. He plays Numbers. Numbers holds about 800 people, right? And so anyway, I go to the Foo Fighters show and opening for the Foo Fighters that night, Spearhead, Michael Fronten no freaking idea who they were, right? It was actually a really good show. I had no idea what he was saying. I'm jumping up and down. It's great. About nine months later, my wife and I go out to Colorado. We meet some friends in Denver. We're going to go to the Lodo Music Festival. And then we're going to just drive around Colorado. We're going to go up to the mountains, do all that. At the Lodo Music Festival, literally when the night before, I'm like, oh my God, it's Spearhead, that group we saw opening for the Foo Fighters. Let's go see them. Went and saw them. It was great. As we're driving around and we're doing Aspen, all that, so is Spearhead. So we wind up seeing Spearhead two more times. I think in Aspen... And then I want to say Steamboat, but it may have been some other place as we were winding around. So I saw a spearheaded four times in about a nine-month period. Amazing 
it is one of the greatest live shows you'll ever see. That dude is so full of energy, so full of passion. He's interacting with the audience and all that. So the song is great that you just said, go see it live. For sure. Yeah. I, me and my wife saw him, call it two summers ago, in Ocean City, Maryland, where my father lives. There's a bar called Secrets. If you live on the East Coast, you know Secrets is probably the best bar in the United States of America. It's like oh, a cool. ja- Jamaican-themed bar. Um, and, man, he puts on a good show. Uh, so the next song's Rage Against the Machine. Again, I mean, this song's 20 years, I think almost 20 years old, but you think of a rap guy, and then there started to be the you know mix of rock and rap. Think of the... Uh, run this way with uh, Run DMC and uh, um, uh, Aerosmith, uh, Anthrax back in those days. But I mean, Zach De La Roca and Tom Tom Morello is one of the best bass guitarists on the face of the planet. The way he plays it, you know, who else can you compare that to? Maybe Les Claypool from Primus. Um, just plays bass different than how a bass should be played, quite frankly. But you know, if you can't get jazzed up, like if there's a workout song, if you're working out or something and you killing in the name of is the rage song that I put right. on the list. Right. And, you know, it, if you know, killing in the name of it ends with fuck you, I won't do what you tell me 16 times in a row <laughs> and then motherfucker at the end of that. Right. But, it, it, you know, so there's a there's a huge bunch of energy. But if you know that song, it actually is in response to and not that like as a kid like i thought about this but the song is about and in response to what happened to rodney king in 1992 and you know there's these lyrics about kind of you know hey some of the cops might be kkk as well and you know a lot of that relates to today because you're seeing you know just hey what's coming out over the last few days and i gave you this list before the you know, January 6th event where, you know, some of these cops are, you know, and military people are being taken down where it's all about social justice and the rage that people feel. And, you, you know, you want to talk about a song that if you turn that up as loud as your volume goes, if you aren't jazzed up by that, you frankly aren't living, quite frankly. Yeah, no, I, uh, no, I agree. It's, it's, the interesting thing about me listening to your songs up to this point, do you have another one on the list? One more. Okay, do the one more and then I'll come back with this. Okay, so the last one is Mona Lisa, which is Lil Wayne. It's actually a Lil Wayne and Kendrick Lamar collaboration. And again, as a rap guy, uh, you know, I kind of like modern rap. Those guys are the best lyricists, I think. And you know, it is the Mona Lisa of lyricists kind of songs, right? Like the two of them just kind of kill it. The opening verse, which is very long, that Lil Wayne does. It's And again, there's a guy that hustles and has hustled for years, puts out a ton of music. Um, and a lot of people may not like, you know, the the language and all that he uses. But, I mean, you got to appreciate how hard that guy hustles and what Kendrick does. It's just, um, you know, it's impressive to me. And you know what's interesting? This is what I was going to say is I had heard half the songs when you sent me that list, and I listened to all of them in a row. And what's really interesting is the thematic points of each one of those songs, as well as kind of the beat. I mean, even though they're very different. I mean, you got a Bob Marley reggae song you got a kendrick lamar rap song the underlying gonna beat what we're feeling are all pretty similar to stuff and so what's interesting is i honestly think if you and i were sitting around and songs came on do you like it or not i think i could pick them out you know there, there's a theme there. There's a consistency there. And I'm going to say this. It's fucking cool as shit. Because I never would have thought Energy Credit 1 would have liked that. Well, I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 
they all have lyrics too that touch me you know that kind of mean something to me you know maybe shadrach doesn't um mr brown perhaps not but you know there's things that uh i listen to the lyrics of the songs that i like and like i said i have this kind of rap rock genre that i like and they all kind of fit in there so i agree with you it's very cool jeff totally cool of you to do this tonight i mean thanks for hanging out i think we've been here all night so uh sorry for keeping you out but man this has been very cool thank you absolutely any uh any final words you know, I would just say, I would imagine a lot of the EFT community, you know, will listen to this. You know, let's let's stay strong. Let's stay together. Let's continue to do what we're doing. And, uh, you know, let's let's use each other and, and, and be the community that we've been over the last couple of years. Um, we've made a difference. Let's continue to make a difference. Well, and and I cut us off short and I didn't mean to, but we should have touched this. So Energy Cynic came on the podcast and he called for leadership. And quite frankly, when he said that, he hit me with something. I was like, oh, fuck. I mean, he's right. I mean, there's nobody out there leading the charge and all that. You picked that up and you actually came out with raising money for folks that were going through, uh, through um, troubled times given what we've get, gone through in the energy business. So big time kudos for you. That being said, you got to talk about that for 30 or 45 seconds before we go. Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing that I'd say is I get way too much credit, right? It was simply an idea of, hey, can we raise five or 10 grand and find a couple families that need some help? And, you know, it turned into something that I had no idea of kind of where it would go. So, you know, I know Cynic, I know Skilling had kind of bounced the idea around themselves because they reached out to me once I sent my tweet out. So, um, you know, I knew commu the community is a powerful thing and let's leverage it, right? And, and we all know folks in the industry that have lost jobs. We all know folks in the industry that are going through tough times. Um, you know, the idea was just simple. Let's let's kind of help people through the holidays. What it turned into was way bigger than what I expected. You know, I I certainly appreciate the uh, the individual that matched the entire amount, and 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 that individual deserves a lot of credit. Uh, Skilling deserves a lot of credit for some of his efforts. That you know, some of the Friday night skits that he did. You know, I came up with an idea but ideas don't execute by themselves. And, and certainly, you know, everyone that was involved deserves a lot of credit. You know, I would, I would just suggest and say, let's do it again. You know, I mean, let's do it again. Um, the folks at OHH have appreciated it. You know, we were able to really double their budget for 2021. You know, there's a lot of folks out there that are in between jobs, as we all know, that need money to just get by, pay rent, pay some bills, you know, get on the right footing so they can go on to the next thing or the next job. Um, you know, and it was done in five bucks here, 10 bucks here, 20 bucks here, 5,000 here, 10,000 here, 100,000. Um, let's appreciate what we have as a community and let's not let it dissolve uh, for any reason, even if the industry continues to do better or, you know, people get busy with their own lives. You know, we've proven, and, and again, I said this in a recent tweet, the country and, you know, even my friends and neighbors, right? Like we're all at each other's throats right now over politics. We're all each at each other's kind of, there's a lot of angst, there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of, you know, view that people can't work together. The country can't work together. We as a community prove that entirely wrong. We have people of, you know, different socioeconomic, you know, uh, status. We have, you know, folks that are rig hands to folks that are CEOs involved in the company in EFT. 
and we all, you know, left, right, center, middle, um, we all came together. So if we can do it, we can show the world that they can do it is kind of, you know, I hate to be sappy, but that's my view on it. No, that's really good. Because I think at the end of the day, Quick Draw contributed and so did H.A. Chambone, you know? And I think that says it all. But you undersold your importance of it because you with 20,000 followers and you being kind of the voice of reason of all of us really led the charge. So kudos to you. Thank you. All right, Jeff Davies, very cool of you to do this. You drove all the way to Richmond, Texas, hung out in the studio with me. I hope you like the Bond wine. We did a major uh, major wine flex tonight, but at the end of the day, very cool of you to do this. Thanks. Take care.